One of my favorite books, um, and one that is required reading among uh, almost every single uh, curriculum in, in school, uh, is Harper Lee's book, To Kill a Mockingbird. Maybe you've read it, maybe you've seen the movie, uh, as it chronicles the, uh, the relationship uh, of a little girl and her brother uh, and their adventures, and specifically um, their relationship with their father, Atticus. There's a, a scene um, and a, and a plot, uh, subplot in that story uh, that is very pertinent to this passage of Scripture this morning. Uh, Atticus Finch in that book is tasked with um, serving as a defense attorney uh, in a trial in which a black man named Tom Robinson has been accused of raping a young white woman named Mayella Ewell. In a racist southern society, Atticus Finch is tasked with almost an impossible task of defending this man whose guilt is presumed from the very beginning and he has to struggle to prove his innocence. In the midst of the trial, as Atticus is cross-examining the witnesses, it comes to light that this young woman, um, when she was assaulted, the majority of her injuries were on the right-hand side of her body, which indicates that in order for the bruises and the injuries to be on that side of her body, the individual that assaulted her had to have primarily used his left hand. It was a left-handed individual to inflict the wounds on that side of his body. The problem is that Tom Robinson can't use his left hand because of a childhood accident in which his arm was caught in a cotton gin, and all of the muscles and tendons were ripped free from his arm. Her father, however, is a left-handed man. And anyone with any sense of justice and fairness would recognize what happened the Tom Robinson story that this young white woman advanced upon him and he fled and her racist father responded in his drunken rage in violence against his daughter and now they are attempting to cover it up and punish an innocent man. The question though is why would she lie? And in his closing arguments, Atticus Finch gives an explanation that I think cuts to the heart of every single one of us. Atticus Finch says this, I have nothing but pity in my heart for the chief witness for the state, but my pity does not extend so far as to her putting a man's life at stake, which she has done in an effort to get rid of her own guilt. Not because she had up to that point done anything that was necessarily illegal, but instead because she had done something which brought shame upon herself and upon her family in that particular society. And in an attempt to cover her own guilt and her own shame, she resorted to telling a lie to put the blame and the focus on someone else. Guilt and shame are evidence of sin. Where there is sin, there will be guilt, and where there is sin, there will be guilt and shame. And since there is not a single one of us who is free of sin, there's not a single one of us who is immune to guilt and shame and the effects that those have on our life and on our actions. What do we do with that guilt and that shame when it comes upon us because of our sin? From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, 
and they were confronted with their guiltiness, what did they do? They attempted to cover their own guilt and cover their own shame by diverting the attention off of themselves. When they were confronted in their sin, Adam said, it's not my fault, it's hers. And by extension, it's yours, God, because you gave her to me. When Eve is confronted in her guilt and her disobedience, she diverts attention away from herself to the serpent. They pointed the finger at someone else in an effort to get rid of their own sin. They didn't care the consequences of pointing the finger at the other person. They only wanted to save themselves, to cover their own guilt, their own shame. The root of our tendency to lie is this desire deep inside of every single one of us to preserve or even improve our position. Whether that position be a societal position, a a job, or even just our reputation in the community, where and when that is threatened by our actions or the actions of someone else, we are not above valuing our position in front of others over and above our neighbors, and in so doing, we give way to lying as an attempt to cover ourselves and cover our tracks. We're just like Adam and Eve. We follow their pattern. We point the finger. We shift the blame. And when it's necessary, we lie. But lying is contrary to the character of God. Lying is detrimental to the health of our society and ourselves. Lying is something that can only be addressed and redeemed by God alone because God is true. And since God is true, we should be too. Look with me, if you will, in Exodus chapter 20. We'll just read the one verse, verse 16 this morning. As God commands his people at the foot of Mount Sinai, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Would you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, as we open your word, I pray that in this moment and in this time, you would make us humble. Heavenly Father, it's our tendency where and when things might get a little bit uncomfortable for us to begin looking at other people. I know, Heavenly Father, how critical I become of others when I know that I am under the guilt and the weight and the conviction of my own sin. How easily I can see the faults and the failures of those that are around me, Heavenly Father, when I am confronted with my own. So I pray that this morning as we sit beneath the gaze of your pure and holy and wonderful word. That, Heavenly Father, we would not be afraid to be exposed for the liars that we are. And that, Heavenly Father, we would in that turn from ourselves to trust in Jesus Christ alone. The one who was not only perfect and true in every way possible, but who willingly let lies be told that we might be saved. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. And amen. We've been working our way through the Ten Commandments, and we're just in the last couple this week and next week as we are now to um, this command, the ninth command, that we are to not bear false witness against our neighbors. 
as we've been studying these, we've been attempting to see them beyond just maybe the normal way that we would interact with them, to see the letter of the law, but understand that in every single one of these commands, God's not only concerned with our actions, but also our attitudes. He's concerned with the motives behind the sins that he is forbidding in each and every one of these passages of Scripture. We've broken the Ten Commandments into two major sections, which Jesus summarizes all of the Old Testament, all of the law, and even these Ten Commandments in the two simple statements. On the one hand, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second command is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In those first four commands in the Ten Commandments, we learn how we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In the last six, we are instructed in how it is that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. In each and every one of these, we see that the heart behind it is a falling short of that exact command to love our neighbors as ourselves. We see that we murder when we value our lives as being greater than that of our neighbors. We see that we steal, we take things that don't belong to us when we value our wants and our needs as greater than our neighbors. We lie when we value our position, our reputation as greater than our neighbors. We break these commands when we fail to love our neighbors in the way that we would want to be loved, which is always better than we deserve. And so as we seek to understand and apply this command, we need to dig deeper than just what is on the surface to understand what the Bible teaches us that is the foundation of this command and then the explanation of this command and the application of it as well. And the foundation must begin with God himself, that God is true and God defines what is true. In each and every one of these commands, we realize that God gives these commands as an expression that instructs us in something that he values. He instructs us not to murder because he values life, because every life is imprinted with his value. He instructs us to honor him and him alone because he is the only God that exists. Here he instructs us not to bear false witness against our neighbors because God is true and God defines what is true. And the question of what is truth is something that's not just plagued our society, it is something that has plagued humanity as far back as even in the days of Jesus himself. In John chapter 19, when Jesus is standing before Pilate, being tried based on the false accusations of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious rulers, he declares to Pilate that he has come to simply speak what is true. And Pilate's response then is, well, what is truth? And he says it kind of half to himself, but this is a question that has plagued our society. We are a society that claims to value truth. And yet, we really don't understand truth. We talk in terms of your truth, in terms of my truth. We encourage people to speak their truth, but in reality, what we're encouraging them to do is to speak their interpretation of the events of their lives. We have defined truth based on our personal experience, and not as something that is objective, 
something that is somehow outside of ourselves and therefore over us to which we must surrender and submit. But the Bible teaches us that truth does exist, that there is a standard of what is right and what is wrong. That truth is not defined by our experience of our lives. That truth is defined instead by God himself. That truth is not just understandable. That truth is knowable because that truth is a person and that person is the Lord who has made himself known to you and to me. Throughout scripture, the Lord refers to his love and his faithfulness. Scripture praises God for his steadfast love and his unending faithfulness. That term, God's faithfulness, is intimately linked with the notion of truth. God is faithful in the sense that God always keeps his word. What God says, God does. God is trustworthy. He is faithful because he only ever speaks what is true. And he can only speak what is true, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, because it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to tell a lie. It's impossible for God to live a lie or to act out a lie. It's entirely against his character and against his nature. As he proves again and again and again, you see, The truth of God and the trustworthiness of God isn't something that's just merely, as I said, intellectually grasped. It's something that is known and something that is experienced. As God repeatedly shows up for his people again and again throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, but also beyond just that in the creation of the world. Because God is trustworthy, he's designed his creation and the universe to reflect his trustworthiness. Do you know why you can trust that the sun will rise every day? Because God is trustworthy. And God is true. And God has created our world not to function according to chaos, but in predictable patterns because God is one who always keeps his promises. God is true. One plus one will equal two. Math works. Science works because God is trustworthy. Because God is trustworthy, he has designed our existence and our world that we inhabit to function according to rules that work, which is what makes miracles so exciting. You know what? That's just what a miracle is when God chooses to break the rules. Because he can. But for the most part, the pattern of our existence is driven by God's own trustworthiness and the truth. Science only works if God exists and God is true. Otherwise, we can't make hypotheses and test them to find out whether or not it's true. But God's trustworthiness is not only known in the fact that the sun will rise tomorrow and that one plus one equals two. It's known in the way that he has interacted with us for our good and for his glory. He's not just designed the world itself to, defi- to, be, to function according to trustworthiness. He's designed our society to, tr- to work that way as well. God not only defines what is true, he knows we need what is true. And so he has designed our society to work according to his truth. 
if we can't trust one another, then our society falls flat on its face. We need the truth. We need what is true. This verse assumes the fallenness of human society. Do you see this? The very fact that God feels necessary to give a command that someone not bear false witness against their neighbor assumes that they would be put in a position to bear witness for or against their neighbor at all. It means that the assumption of this verse is that there is a legal system that is necessary. That there will be men and there will be women and there will be children and there will be groups of people and nations who will sin and that sin will require justice. And that justice is dependent upon society's testimony as a whole. And so God takes justice and the truthfulness of witnesses very seriously. And this is where the ninth command comes into play. Because we are expected to be a people who preserve and pursue justice in our society. We are to be a people who not only know that God is true, but we are to be a people who pursue truth in our lives because we need that truth. And our society needs that truth. And God has embedded this justice system within the Hebrew society. And he takes it very seriously because there are very serious consequences if someone's found guilty. Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 and following. God commands, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with an offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. It's not enough for there to be one person who claims that this happened. Instead, in the Old Testament, there was the expectation that where two or three witnesses existed, then a trial could be moved forward and a a charge could be entertained against someone. And God goes on and says, if an evil witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst." The consequences of someone who decided that they were going to bring a false charge against someone else in the society is that whatever it is that they were going to get from that person in lying against them is what is taken from them, even if it's their own life. If I'm going to lie against you and I'm going to steal your home, then in God's law you are to respond. Your eye shall not have pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's the context of that famous statement, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That if you rise up as a lying witness against someone else, you shall receive the punishment that you desire to inflict on another. There were many laws that required severe punishments, and those laws could only be enacted by two to three witnesses, and they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have security cameras. They didn't have audio testimony. They didn't have DNA or anything else. Their society was dependent upon the testimony of faithful witnesses. And so the integrity of their justice system was completely dependent upon the honesty of the people who took the stand. And so to preserve that society, to preserve that system of justice, 
God takes the truthfulness of the witnesses seriously. We see this law broken egregiously into Kill a Mockingbird. We see it broken when police officers plant or tamper with evidence. We see it when individuals file false reports or make fake 911 calls and so much more. On the surface, this command is a command against perjury. Lying in court in such a way that it would cause someone else harm. But what we've seen to be true about all of these commandments is that God forbids the most extreme form of a sin as a way of saying this is the farthest it can go and oh, by the way, everything that would lead you to that is forbidden as well. It's not just that we can sit back and go, you know what, I I would never commit perjury. I would never go into a courtroom and put my hand on the Bible and swear that I was going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, and then turn around and lie. Maybe we wouldn't. But the courts of law aren't the only courts that exist in our land. There's also the court of public opinion. And we have seen just in the last several years, really the last several decades, what can happen when media outlets run with a story without all of the facts? What happens when a few people with a Twitter keyboard or a Facebook page and post can throw something out there without all of the information and we see what happens to the reputation and to the ministry of churches, of pastors? What happens to the careers of politicians and public figures at any different level? The Bible forbids all of this. This command, in a sense, I told you last week that I think that the command that you shall not steal is is kind of a counterpart to the you must rest. You must rest because it's not all from you. You have to believe and trust in the Lord, but you must work six days out of the week because it's not all for you either. And in a sense... This command that we are not to bear false witness against our neighbor, I think, is a counterpart to God's forbidding that we take his name in vain. And we talked about that's not just simply using God's name as a cuss word. Instead, that has to do with how we live for God and how we protect and preserve his reputation. We are to be a people who live lives in such a way that God's name, his reputation, his renown is not damaged by our actions. In the same way, we are to be a people who protect and preserve the name and the renown and the reputation of our neighbors. Not at the expense of justice where it's necessary, but we are to be a people that love our neighbors by refusing to speak against them unnecessarily and evilly. We must be a people who positively live to protect and preserve the name of others. But there are other ways that the Scripture says that we might break this command. First and foremost, one might be refusing to speak for the truth when it's necessary. It's just as wrong to stand up on the stand and say someone is guilty when they're innocent as it is to know someone is innocent and not take the stand and declare it. 
God says in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1, if anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. We have a responsibility to be those who speak for the truth because we're people who need truth. We want to treat other people the way that we would want to be treated. And I don't know about you, but if someone gives a false accusation against me and says that I did something, and I have a friend who I was eating dinner with at the time that I was supposed to do this sin or this wrong, I want that person to step up and say, hey, by the way, he was with me. I can verify. To refuse to do that and to leave someone to an unjust consequence is equally a violation of this command as if you were the one who stood up and lied in the first place. We can violate this command by our actions. We can violate it by our inactions beyond just simply keeping silent when we should speak. Speaking wrongly is also considered evil. Throughout the Bible, the Bible condemns slander. Repeatedly, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the Proverbs, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, for example, Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Slander is the intentional spreading of information that you know is false in such a way that it destroys the reputation of someone else. Slander is passing along information that you don't really necessarily know to be fully true. And we can do that with our actions. And one commentary made a point that we have a tendency most often to do this in our hearts. We slander other people in our hearts and in our minds. Well, she didn't speak to me today, so she just must be really mad. She must be angry. Well, he hasn't called me in such and such a, a time. Or we, we attribute motives to other people, not based on facts, but based on our feelings. And we begin to fret over what might be or what has happened. And we begin to say in our hearts and our minds, maybe not to other people, but to ourselves, we begin to question the character of this other person, not because of any real facts, but because of our own presumption of the events. And we tear them down in our hearts and in our minds. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, when you question someone's character in your heart or your mind, you're not very far of questioning that character and damaging that character with your lips. We need to be people who love and pursue the truth because our neighbors deserve the truth. And where there is a difficulty, we don't need to hide and pull back and hold back. We need to step forward and say, hey, I misunderstood something or maybe I'm getting things wrong. Would you help me understand what is the reasoning for your actions, your attitudes, whatever else it may be? But a step away from slander that also falls under this command is what is probably one of the biggest attacks on the unity of the body of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. And that's gossip. Slander is the intentional sharing of information that you know not to be true in such a way that it damages that person's reputation. But gossip, gossip is sharing information that isn't necessary in such a way that it damages the reputation of another person. Gossip is not a lie. 
brothers and sisters. Gossip is truth used, or actually, gossip is truth misused. There can be information that you and I have that is absolutely true, but when we stop and we ask the question, is this helpful for this person to know this information? Or is it hurtful? That's gossip. When we spread information that shouldn't be spread, even if it's true, we're damaging the reputation of somebody else and violating this commandment. But beyond just that, like I said, it is a severe attack on the very unity of the people. The very unity of the church of Jesus Christ. Gossip is as serious of a plague in the church as pornography. And we have somehow in our mind classified it as a lesser sin, but in reality, it is a direct attack on the trustworthiness of the body of Jesus Christ. If I can't trust you to love me even in the face of my failures, then we're not a Christian community. And so a litmus test on before you open your mouth and you share that bit of information, one, is it going to help? And two, why am I sharing it? Am I sharing it to build me up? Oh, I didn't know that. I want, I'm going to draw a little bit. And that person pulls into me and into my sphere and my sphere of influence. And so I amass a following to myself because I'm the person who's in the know. Or am I genuinely doing it because, you know what, I have a really heartfelt concern for this individual and what's going on in their life. And you know what, Pastor, I don't know how to deal with this. Would you help me? Would you go with me? That is completely different. That is working according to Galatians. When we see our brother and our sister in sin, you who are spiritual should go to that person that they might be restored by your presence in their life. It's not restorative to gossip among this group over here about that person's fault or failure or a difficulty in their life. That's gossip. But instead, getting up and leaving the circle and saying, how can I help? That's fruitful. And that's what's expected. We are to guard one another's reputations. And therefore preserve the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. We are to be people who don't merely just not speak the lie. We are to be a people in a society that's characterized by spin. And in a society that loves to see the fall and the failure of successful individuals. In a society that loves to take a good name and drag it through the mud. We are to be a people who don't just not speak lies but live for the truth and preserve the truth, and fight for the truth, because we need the truth, and the people that are around us need the truth, and so we need to fight that battle first, not with our lips, but in our minds, which is what Paul commands us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Long before we win the battle of our lips, we have to win the battle of our minds. 
that we stop and we ask the question is what I'm dwelling on true? Is it honorable? Is it commendable? Is it upbuilding? Is it uplifting? If not, Lord, would you take control of my mind and redirect me to what is? That I might love this person in my mind. But beyond that, we need to be people who don't just fight the battle in our mind. We need to fight the battle in our lives. And so we must be people who speak the truth. Not only think the truth and love the truth and know the truth, we need to be people who are willing to step up and speak the truth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We don't need to speak lies. We don't need to speak half-truths. We don't need to speak almost truths or maybe truths. We need to be people who speak only the truth. And we need to be people who are willing to look the other person in the eye and go, do you know that for a fact? Have you spoken to so-and-so about this yet? If not, why are you here with me? Why don't we go together and let's squash this now? That takes courage and that takes boldness. But that's love. But it's a problem for people who are liars by nature. It's a problem for people who value our position better than our neighbor's. God is good and trustworthy, but we are weak and we are sinful, and the truth is not in us. Instead, the truth must be given to us, which, praise the Lord, our generous God is always willing to give. See, God is not only the one who defines truth and he knows that we need truth, God gives truth. God makes his truth available to us and in us. He gives us his truth first and foremost in his word. Jesus, as he's praying on the garden, he, in the garden before he's going to uh, be crucified, he prays and he cries out to the Lord, Lord, would you sanctify them in the truth? Your word is truth. The fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, if we are refusing to engage God here, which is the truth, as communicated to us by the God of truth. If we are not living and breathing and, 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 and hiding God's word in our own heart, it should not shock us that we have our, our radars, our, our truth radars are dead or turned off. Instead, when we are in love with God's word and in love with him and fellowshipping with him in his word, such that we know God's word and we hide it in our hearts, then we know the truth. And where and when there is a lie, where and when the father of lies, Satan, attempts to speak into our lives, we'll recognize it. Not because we have spent our time getting familiar with the lies, but because we know the truth backwards and forwards. We know it is real so that we can spot a counterfeit. But beyond just his word, God doesn't just leave us alone without this guide in his word. He's also spoken to us in truth, and beyond that, he has come to us in truth. This God who is true and trustworthy throughout the entire Old Testament, who proves himself to be that again and again and again as he engages in his people's life, is the same God who comes to us in the New Testament. And that's what John tells us in John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus declared in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Truth isn't just known here. Truth is known ultimately in the person that is Jesus Christ. The one who came, made himself known in our lives, 
And he did so in the most spectacular way, not just in his ordinary obedience and truthfulness every single day of his life, but this one who was perfectly true, who never lied, who never harmed another person, who never attacked their reputation, instead allowed himself to be lied against. You see, where you and I would be tempted to lie to cover our sin, he had no sin to cover. And where you and I would be tempted to rise in defense of our good name and our reputation, Jesus chose, instead of rising to his own defense, to allow himself to be lied against and crucified and have his name drugged through the mud, his face spit upon and slapped and beaten and crucified for a crime that he never committed. Matthew chapter 26, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus. The ones who claimed to stand for the law broke the law to crucify Christ. And yet he endured it. Not for his sake, but for yours and for mine. As he let them spew their lies that we might be saved. Because his death on the cross then becomes the place where our guilt and our shame is finally dealt with. Not because of anything we can do, but only because of what Jesus did. And when you and I are willing to take the journey that is downward into the honest realization that our name and our reputation are worthless because we bring nothing to the table but our sin and our guilt and our shame, that we, left to ourselves, are nothing more than liars, thieves, murderers, adulterers, and idolaters. And when we are willing to come in that kind of humility to say, God, I have nothing in my hands, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. It's at that place that we lay our name and our kingdom and our reputation at the feet of Jesus Christ, and he places his name upon us. Such that we receive a name and a reputation that isn't worthless, but is worth more than all of the universe combined. And we are known by that name, and we are given a brand new name, a name that you won't even know until that final day when God reads it from his book. And we'll live for eternity in a society that needs no justice because justice has been finished and completed once and for all as Jesus reigns. And all of those who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ to receive first and foremost the truth from him that comes by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ are now the ones who are empowered to live with him, by him, and like him in our lives such that Jesus is able to speak this blessing over all of those who are in him. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We are invited not only into the glory of Jesus Christ at the end of time, we are invited into the suffering of Christ now. As we live as Christ lived, as faithful witnesses to the truth, you will be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And witnesses for Christ must be true witnesses. And that truth must be in us and that truth must come from us as we're faithful to go into the world just as Christ came for us. And we can count even our sufferings for Christ and for the gospel as blessings. How are you attempting to deal with your guilt and your shame? Like Adam and Eve, are you pointing the finger to somebody else? Are you attempting to defend it or excuse it in your day-to-day life? Or instead, have you trusted in the fact that Jesus has dealt with it once and for all at the cross? When you dwell on that truth in your heart and in your mind, Jesus, not only are we a people then who, who speak the truth in our life and think the truth in our mind, we have the truth embedded in our hearts by the grace of God. And that whole person then is free to live as truth-tellers, as truth-livers. We live like God because God is true and we should be too.